Good afternoon. I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. Today we are beginning a new series, this one celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month. We'll present four programs, each considering an important issue in the Latinx community and beyond. We'll begin with the historian, author, and activist Aviva Chomsky. Chomsky is a professor of history and the coordinator of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Salem State University in Man uh, Massachusetts. She previously taught at Bates College in Maine and was a research associate at Harvard University, where she specialized in Caribbean and Latin American studies. Between 1976 and 1977, Avi Chomsky worked for the United Farm Workers Union. She credited this experience with sparking her interest in the Spanish language and migrant workers and immigration in labor history, in social movements and labor organizing, in multinationals and their workers, in how global economy forces affect individuals and how people collectively organize for social change. And at the University of California in Berkeley, she earned a BA in Spanish and Portuguese in 1982, an MA in history in 1985, and a PhD in history in 1990, loaded down with, with degrees there, Javi. <laughs> she began teaching at Bates College and became an associate professor of history at Salem State College in 1997. She is the author of many books and many, many articles. Her latest book is Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration, uh, published by Beacon in April of this year, uh, 2021. So it is an honor to have you today, Avi. Can we call you Avi? Of course, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So it's a great pleasure really to have you here and being able to talk about this. So your new book, Central Americans Forgotten History, I suspect you would like to talk about that. So let's just go ahead. Tell us about the book, uh, why this and why now? You know, I feel like in many ways I came of age politically. You mentioned the United Farm Workers, um, which I always talk about. It was definitely very important. But in many ways, I feel like I came of age politically during, during the 1980s. That's when I was in college and graduate school. I was at UC Berkeley. Um, and there was so much going on in, in Central America at the time um, in terms of revolutions, the successful revolution in Nicaragua in 1979 and the revolutionary movements um, in El Salvador and Guatemala. And being in California and in Berkeley, I think we felt really closely tied to those movements in many ways. There were many refugees coming in from uh, El Salvador and Guatemala, um, fleeing the US sponsored wars. Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980 and immediately um, dedicated himself to overthrowing the communist threat in Central America. And you know, Berkeley's a really politically active campus. So um, opposition to the Contra war, you know, this was my, my college years was, was paying attention to this and being, being wrapped up in opposition to US policy and outraged by US policy and inspired by the revolutions of Central America. And I feel like so much of that, both the 
hopes and promise of the revolutions and also the outrage at US policy has just kind of been buried. Um, and I've been teaching Central American history since 1990. And it's like ancient history to my students by now. Um, and even my Central American students, and I have a lot of Central American immigrant students, and now in Massachusetts, we have a very large Central American immigrant population. Um, so immigration has become an issue that people talk about, but the wars, the revolutions and wars, and the long-term impact of what happened there in the 1980s is not. And so many of my Central American students say, you know, my parents never want to talk to me about why they left and, you know, what was happening in their countries. Um, and uh, so there was also a lot of kind of popular level publication about Central America during those years. Everybody wanted to know what was happening in Central America and why and what the United States was doing. So when I first started teaching in 1990, there was tons of literature for me to assign to my students. And scholars have continued writing about Central America since then. So there still is a lot of literature, but most of it is not really accessible to a general or undergraduate audience. So those were all the different things in my mind. And, and I feel like that history is so important, not only to understand today's migration, but to have a better understanding of the history of the United States as a country, um, US foreign policy in other regions. That is, we tend to sort of compartmentalize. So like, oh, you know, we have Afghanistan, we have Iraq, we have Central America, um, we have immigration, like all these things are unrelated to each other, but actually they're all very closely related to each other. And the way we respond to them is shaped by how we understand US history. So, you know, in the book, I actually go back to U.S. history of settler colonialism, um, which I always talk about when I talk about immigration as a way of reframing the way people begin to think about what is this country and why does it do the things that it does and have the policies that it does. So those were some of the the things that drew me to writing this book. And I can also say I wrote the book because I had a sabbatical and this is one of the um, privileges we have as academics as we get time off to do research. And so I had this project kind of percolating in my mind and when my sabbatical came along, okay, okay this is the time when, when I need to write this book. One of the diminishing privileges of the, <laughs> of the people of letters. Um, maybe, uh, you know, that's a big issue out here, which maybe we're starting to come to grips with settler uh, colonialism, because it's kind of in our face a lot of the time. Could you maybe just just say exactly what you mean by settler colonialism? I think that would be worth a minute or two. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think it's also really notable that I think settler colonialism is probably the single most important concept that people need to understand US history. And it's systematically left out of our educational system. So I don't think I've ever had a student come into one of my classes having previously been exposed to the concept of settler colonialism. So it's like the elephant in the room that we avoid talking about. But so settler colonialism is a particular kind of colonialism. And even colonialism, I feel, um, is not very well understood. And I actually teach a course now called Colonialism and the Making of the Modern World. And students generally come into the course thinking it's gonna be a course about like pilgrims and Puritans because that's what we learned that colonialism <laughs> means. 
Um, but so colonialism refers to sort of the 500 year process of European domination of the world um, and extraction of labor and resources from Africa, Asia, and the Americas, which led to, this is a, a summary of my, my 500 year course in, in 30 seconds, um, led to our current unequal world where wealth and power are concentrated in a few countries, primarily the former colonial powers that built their wealth and power off of the exploitation and extraction of the land and labor of people of color um, in what we now call the third world, the formerly colonized world. Um, so that's colonialism, but settler colonialism is a particular variation of that where under traditional colonialism, the European powers sent a few um, military and political representatives to rule over large existing native populations. In settler, so you know, think of the British in India, for example. Um, settler colonialism is where the European powers, um, instead of ruling over a native population, determined to obliterate the native population. And this happened primarily where the native population was not already organized into social formations that the Europeans could easily exploit. So in say Spanish America, there were native elites who the Spanish could ally with and continue exploitative systems and intensify exploitative and extractive systems. But in places like North America, where the population, the indigenous populations were smaller and were not organized into empires that the Europeans could take advantage of, um, they followed a different pattern of settler colonialism um, based on, as one of its uh, scholars explained, the logic of elimination that the native population must be eliminated and replaced by European settlers. So that a new country is going to be founded through genocide and dispossession of existing native populations. And this is the pattern that was followed primarily um, by the British in North America, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Canada, um, where, uh, the, the logic of elimination rather than the logic of rule uh, prevails in the colonial uh, system. So settler colonialism has very specific implications for, the, for immigration. That is settler colonial colonies and countries um, depend on European immigration. They foster European immigration that is how they replace the native population by bringing in Europeans to found a white country. Um, so this is built in not only to British colonialism in North America, but the other really important piece of it is those founding fathers who all my students have heard of when they come into class, they represented the British colonizers. Their goal in achieving independence was not to end colonialism as say anti-colonial struggles in, just to take one other American example that happened close to the American revolution in Haiti, 
where the anti-colonial struggle was carried out by the colonized people and their goal was to end colonialism, to overthrow the plantation system, to overthrow their French colonial masters, to drive out their French colonial masters and to found a free country run by the people who were colonized. In the United States, it was the British colonial masters, it was the landholders, the land speculators, the slave owners who carried out the revolution. And they carried it out in order to expand their colonial project, not to end the colonial project. So if you think about those original 13 colonies that fought for independence, and think about what happened to the country of the United States after it was established as a country, colonial expansion is what happened. Those slave owners and land speculators greatly increased the white settler colonial project after independence. And that's why the United States is, does not occupy the territory of those original 13 colonies today. It occupies the entire uh, continent because independence led immediately to a century and a half of warfare against indigenous populations to displace, dispossess, and replace with white immigrants. And, and one, just one last question. How would you put uh, Central America into this uh, framework? Okay, so Central America um, in a complicated way fits into this framework. So in many ways, Central America's colonial period um, fits the, the classic example of colonialism where a few Spaniards are there to rule over a large population of indigenous people in part by allying with indigenous elites. And this is not just in Central America, but everywhere in Latin America. But the Latin American independence struggles were generally either led, or if not led, because there were, there were many different tendencies within the Latin American revolutions, but, but victory in the end um, was grabbed by mostly Spanish-descended elites. Um, and to a certain extent, mixed race elites. So, um, so the new governments of the Latin American countries drew on both their own colonialist attitudes towards the indigenous populations, their own desires for racial whitening through sponsoring and fostering European immigration. So in that respect, they shared a lot of ideologies and policies with the founding fathers of the United States. Um, but at the same time, they were subject in the global order to the global economic powers, which by the mid 19th century, when the Latin American countries become independent are primarily Great Britain and the United States. So they have an anti-colonial attitude towards the United States and Great Britain, but they also um, are very attracted to those countries and dependent on those countries. And they share a colonial attitude 
towards their own indigenous population. And it's not just attitudes, but I'm talking here about policies and the formation of these nation states is based on those two sort of conflicting um, goals and sets of ideas. I'm gonna back off for a minute now, cause I know uh, Loretto has been uh, dying to have a chance to talk to you and has a, a whole bunch of questions of her own, but thanks very much. You're welcome. Oh, thank you, Carl. So I was just um, thinking what about what you said at the beginning of this uh, conversation that you were talking about how all this uh, interest of you arose during your time in the 80s when you were studying and learning. So that was a very buoyant time and uh, it felt like it was really like these nations were really claiming they're, they are fairly new nations in the sense of the modern democracy. But uh, since then, we have seen many democratic efforts and uh, some of the left taking power over these governments and then being overthrown by coups and so on. I mean, you mentioned Haiti, which is a remarkable case in so many ways as a nation that has been devastated again and again and again, and not only by the natural forces of being a telluric country, meaning they have earthquakes. I don't know if you say that word in English, sorry. Un, un país telurico, como decimos en Chile. But anyway, I, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, about how democracy has really been honored or not in these countries. I mean, how these powers have expressed in the, la the last 20 years in, in those countries and, um, and, and what is, has been the result, how we can still see what you are describing, because this is already something that is quite engraved into these countries. And it's also one of the reasons of the big migrations that we see. Yeah, so um, I hope it's okay if I divert for just a minute and talk yes, about then Chile. Um, because like this didn't just start in the 1980s, obviously. So in Chile, we have um, an example uh, in the 1970s where a socialist is elected in one of the most longstanding democracies of Latin America, where a socialist candidate is elected through the democratic process. There's no question that, that the constitution and the democratic process are being followed, that it's a free and fair election, um, and that the victor is Salvador Allende. Um, but ruling a country, a third world country, a poor country from the left is an extremely difficult process. And I would say that for two reasons. One, because there's an extremely economically powerful domestic elite that is going to fight tooth and nail against any kind of redistributive reforms. And two, because there's a global economic system and governments and multinationals, many of them based in the United States um, and the US government, of course, that share a set of interests with those elites and are firmly opposed to any kind of redistributive change. And these forces wield power on a number of different levels. Um, they control international financial institutions. They control trade relationships and agreements. They can impose sanctions. So they can do a lot to economically undermine a country that is trying to redistribute or bring about change. And some of this 
may be illegal and covert types of activities, but some of it is quite above board. That is, investors don't want to go where they don't think they're going to make enough profit. And a redistributive program is going to cut into the profits of investors. Investors are going to flee, whether they're domestic or foreign. So, you know, Allende's government confronted what every leftist redistributive government has confronted in Latin America, which is that as you're trying to redistribute the pie, the pie gets smaller, capital flight, um, and resistance, political and, and economic and military resistance build. So in the end, um, you know, the United States vowed that it was going to overthrow the Allende government and in alliance with um, local elites and especially in the military, um, succeeded in overthrowing the government in the bloody coup of September 11th. Um, so Avi, since we are going this route, I want to say something also. <laughs> So uh, this is why lately, uh, you know, I grew up in Chile. I just said that I'm from Chile. Um, and um, so I grew up in the dictatorship. I was five years old when the coup happened. And we also, we always refer to it as a military coup. But for the last 20 years, we have completely changed the discourse because after recovering democracy in 1990, we had 10 years of, of um three different presidents uh, where we could not free our country from the control of these elites and the military, which are tightly, very closely, you know, uh, waved together, uh, intertwined. And um, uh, so now we change the discourse and that now we say we lived, uh, we experienced a dictatorship that it was civil and military. Because if we cannot just only talk about the army, we need to talk about these forces that you are describing. And naturally, unfortunately, the example of Chile is something that we can see in many other places uh, again and again and again. So we need to also, also surface these elements. And this brings me to something that you say again and again in your own book, uh, where you are actually talking about this idea that for years we have erased histories in order to create a history, you know, a monolithic history that will allow us to uh, create some kind of a vision which is distorted from these countries. So I wanted to ask you also talk about that, about how history, the systemic, well, I don't know if the academics, because that will be <laughs> like talking really poorly about all of us here in the school today. But, uh, but there is an intellectual uh, arena where all these things have been also justified and kind of make digestible for us as a history of democracy and representation. Well, I actually think with regard to Central America, there is, and also with regard to Chile, there is tons of amazing academic work being done, trying to untangle these things. The problem is that most of it is not really accessible to the general public. And when the mass media looks for an expert to um, talk to the general public or to quote on these things, they usually don't go to the scholars who are doing this critical work but rather they go to somebody from 
the Brookings Institute or to you know some some mainstream think tank who's going to basically explain things within the dominant paradigm rather than challenging the dominant paradigm. So it's not that that academics aren't really doing the work. I think academics are doing the work, but I think there's a gap between the work that academics are doing and what the general public has access to. And you know, you talked about the civil military dictatorship in Chile, but you left out the third pillar, which is the international system. And just to take this back to your your earlier question about democracy and what does it mean in Central America, that is no Central American government, no government of a poor, indebted, third world, formerly colonized country can really be said to have a democracy when the, the sphere of action for its government is so constrained by international systems and international pressures. So if democracy means rule by, for, and of the people, then we can't really say that any country that is powerless in the world system has a democracy because its people, no matter who they elect, no matter what its government wants to do, its people don't have a voice in the international system. And I think this is really what we see happening in Central America after the 1990s. Yes, there are so-called democracies, there are elections, the left is even elected into power um, on different occasions, you know, the Sandinistas won the election in 1984, the FMLN, the Salvadoran Revolutionary Party, um, became a political party and was elected into power in the second decade of the 21st century. But the ability of these elected governments from the left to really enact the kinds of reforms that they desire and that they were elected for is severely limited. And, you know, after 1990, when the revolutionary movements in different ways are essentially crushed or dismantled in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala, then you see the onslaught of neoliberal reforms enforced by the World Bank and other international financial institutions and enforced through the Central America Free Trade Agreement which then becomes CAFTA DR, uh, imposed by the United States. And again, many Central American elites support um, the structural adjustment programs and the this so-called free trade agreements. Um, the structural adjustment programs refer to um, policies imposed by international financial institutions, especially the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund in the 1990s um, on debt-ridden poor countries basically taking over their economies, taking advantage of the fact that they are indebted to take over their economies and to force them to follow a particular economic model based on privileges for foreign investors and cutbacks in social services and government spending. So government spending can only happen when it's for the benefit of foreign corporations. So. You know, these governments have very little autonomy in the international financial system, but those civil elites basically agree with those kinds of policies that are being implemented. 
But the idea is that instead of wasting money on redistributive efforts that um, that foreign investors don't like, you spend government money on building the kind of infrastructure that foreign investors want in order to invest, in order to help pay back your loans. And if the people starve, it doesn't matter. So the structural adjustment programs of the 1990s and the free trade agreements of the 2000s basically enforce these turning Central America into a paradise for foreign investors and greatly increasing poverty and violence for the majority of the population who are then subject to displacement, to low wages, to um, taking of their lands, to environmental destruction, all in the interests of the profits of a few elites and foreign investors. Avi, we have to pause here for just a, a moment. Uh, let me say that this is Cal Winslow, that's me, and Loretta Rojas. We're your host today. Our program is talking about California. And in this series, we're celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month. This is KZYXNZ. It's Mendocino County Community Listener Supported Radio. And our guest this uh, afternoon is Aviva Chomsky. She's the professor of history and the coordinator of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts. Loretto. So, Avi, one of the things that was, um, uh, you know, we are celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month, talking about California, Cal and I, we are launching this series with you today. So, I wanted to ask you because uh, September 15th is the day of the independence of many countries in Central America. And of course, for me, that signals something. It reminds me those straight lines in the maps, you know, when you look at Africa or many other places, even in the United States, uh, our, our states, sometimes it's just these little lines, boxes that you, you see clearly that someone took a ruler and draw over a map without any consideration of individuals. So I'm going to um, say uh, yesterday was the, I mean, sorry, the, the 15, it was actually the independence days of uh, Costa Rica and um, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua as well. Now, now undoubtedly my own uh, list of countries. Uh, so this naturally, I mean, I'm going to assume that naturally respond to these higher powers, economical powers that decided somehow that this region, which used to be just one big country as the United States, needed to be break it into a small pieces to have this control over these nations, right? So if you look at a map of colonial Latin America, it's ruled primarily by Spain and Portugal. Um, although on the Northern coast of South America, there are some small Dutch, British and French colonies. Um, the British control Belize on the um, Caribbean coast of Central America, and of course the Caribbean islands are, are full of multiple European powers that basically have nibbled at the edges of Spain and Portugal's empires. But just focusing on Spanish America for a minute, because that's where Central America and Chile all, all fall, um, Spain ruled by creating its own subdivisions. First, it divided Latin America into two vice royalties, the vice royalty of New Spain, 
which is the northern portion of the area they claimed to control. And the Viceroyalty of New Spain went all the way, you know, it included California and much of what's today the US Southwest, Mexico, Central America. Um, and the Viceroyalty of Peru, which was basically all of South America. And then it even created some other administrative divisions, new viceroyalties in the 1700s, like the Viceroyalty of New Granada in um, Northern South America, the Viceroyalty of La Plata in Southern South America. Um, and then these viceroyalties were divided into what they called audiencias. So, so we have these administrative divisions that initially are based on um, the two empires that Spain conquered, the Aztec Empire based in central Mexico and the Incan Empire based in the Andean mountains of Peru. And then Spain, and Spain also makes a lot of land claims for lands that it doesn't really control. So, you know, most of California, the parts that are now the United States, much of the Amazonian region, much of South America, you know, the Spanish claimed control over these areas, but there was no actual real Spanish control. Their indigenous people controlled the lands that they lived in. And this is why in the 1850s, when the United States takes this whole Northern piece from the now independent country of Mexico, again, this is like lines drawn on a piece of paper because these lands were inhabited by indigenous people who did not grant either Spain, Mexico, or the United States the right to rule them. So this is why the, the peace treaty of 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, is followed by 50 years of warfare where the United States is fighting against the actual sovereigns in the territory, which are the native peoples, the indigenous peoples, the Apaches, the Comanches, the dozens of different indigenous uh, native tribes. So the Indian Wars um, is this expansion of the settler colonial project that I was talking about later. The Mexican-American War was the least of it. Um, you know, that was over in a couple of years. Indian Wars took 50 years to actually establish US sovereignty in, in those territories the colonial project. So, you know, one of the leaders of Latin America's independence, Simon Bolivar, his vision was for Latin America to be one country, Gran Colombia, a, uh, you know, a united Latin America. And one of the reasons he wanted a united Latin America um, was because uh, of the need to counterbalance the overwhelming political and economic power of the United States. Um, and he was quite worried about the capacity of Latin America to develop its independent path rather than just falling under the domination of the United States. But as I said, Latin America's wars for independence were kind of all civil wars with multiple different actors fighting each other for who was going to take control. And while independence from Spain may be attributed to that date of September 15th, um, fighting continued. And um, I wouldn't say that the United States actually controlled or really had any influence at all over this process, but different elite families and clans uh, fought each other for rule to, to, to rise to political dominance over these territories. So the Central American countries achieved their independence from Spain as part of Mexico. 
then broke off from Mexico as the United Provinces of Central America, and then broke up into the countries as we know them today. So this has to do mostly with the power of Spanish-descended elites on the ground fighting for political control in what now look like firm boundaries of countries, but even some of those firm boundaries, like it took the whole 19th century of fighting, um, and some of them are still contested today. Aviva, you've written many books, I should say, and um, our listeners, I hope, will be inspired to read uh, your the book you have just out. I hope that listeners will be uh, inspired to read that, but also other books you've written about Cuba, Colombia, Costa Rica, Latin American labor, the U.S. Uh, and one thing I noticed uh, is that labor seems to be a thread that runs through uh, all of this. Uh, is, is that right? Should we say something about that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in many ways, I define myself as a labor historian as well as, as a Latin American historian. And, you know, Loreto was talking about my time with the United Farm Workers Union. And I feel like that, that year really raised my consciousness about labor, about the role of labor and the invisibility of labor in our global economic system. And just how important looking at the workers is, both in terms of how the global economic system functions and also as a revolutionary subject. That is who rebelled in Central America, well, you know, who, who was fighting for their rights uh, in the 1960s and 70s in the United States, um, farm workers, and who led the revolutions in Central America in the 1980s, it was workers and peasants. So, and, and peasants are workers, they're rural workers. So, um, so understanding the role of labor and the role of workers in history, and I feel like, you know, the traditional versions of history that we get of the founding fathers are able to develop these celebratory narratives of these great men because they invisibilize the work that um, underlies the extraction and building of wealth. And that includes enslaved workers, um, migrant workers, all kinds of workers. So, so yeah, um, following the trail of products, you know, those bananas on my shelf, there's no bananas on my shelf right now, but um, sometimes there are, uh, back to the workers who picked them, I feel is a really important way of illuminating historical processes that that have been forgotten and invisibilized in, in traditional histories. And when I say traditional histories, you know, I was just giving academics a lot of credit for the histories they're writing today, but most of those histories have not made it into the textbooks that students are reading in um, elementary school, middle school, high school. They're still getting the, what I was learned in college was called Dwem history, dead white European men. That's what history is about, dead white European men. And I feel like that's still, um, that's still what they're learning and, um, and 
even in popular culture, like I was just reading um, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's new book, which I also really recommend. Her work complements mine in so many ways, or our work complements each other's. Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Erasure and Exclusion. I was so jealous when I saw her title. I should have taken that title before she did. Um, but it's a great book and it starts out with a critique of Hamilton. Like even those like posing, promoting themselves as progressive and pro-immigrant uh, and talking about Lin-Manuel Miranda's um, musical Hamilton and its acceptance in the United States are like promoting this mythology of the great founding fathers, even as they are putting like a multicultural veneer on it. Yes, uh, the representation of the history in the popular arena, it can be really detrimental, no? It creates all kind of um, um, stereotypes and uh, misunderstandings, generalizations and so on. So we are entering into our last, um, we have been here talking for around three quarters of our time. So I wanted to remind our audience that we are talking with Avi Chomsky and uh, this is talking about California with a series uh, honoring Hispanic Heritage Month. And we are talking about the history of Central America and how that is so tied into the history and the understanding of our own country, the United States. So uh, going back to the topic of um, uh, labor, because I think it's so important. Uh, we see that our these nations in Central America have been exploited in, in many different ways. And uh, one of the things that is so into the discussion these days is climate change, or it has been for the last years. And it's unavoidable because people say, oh, this is the hottest uh, year in records regarding to temperatures, and then others are saying, when is actually one of the coolest, the last cool, coolest one, because it's going to just, the temperatures are going to rise and rise. So you talk also a little bit about this in your book. And of course, we are all horrified to see the level of uh, leaders and lideresses, you know, women involved in the protection of the land and this discussion about how not only uh, the rights of, the ownership of my body. We, we in Latin America discuss, talk a lot about this, like a, a, the body of the woman as a territory that needs to be defended. And then of course we have a strong tie with the Pachamama, which is mother earth. And, uh, and we are naturally as, as indigenous people really attached to our land. And in the efforts of protecting it, we have been confronted with just death and assassination. So, how, how is looking the situation now in, in Central America with all these different uh, groups that are trying to defend the land from the latest mining exploitations projects in the area? So I have to say that from my perspective, it looks pretty dire. You know, people trying to defend their lands from rapacious foreign investors, extractive projects, like that's as old as 1492. That's the struggle that, that working people of um, Latin America have been engaged in since 1492. Um, you know, the Europeans came trying to extract gold, trying to extract silver, trying to um, grow 
sugar, all of which require um, destroying landscapes, taking over land, displacing people, and forcing labor under horrific conditions for the profits of Europeans in the global economy. So in a way, in some ways, what we're seeing now is more of the same. Foreign mining companies, um, foreign uh, agricultural companies trying to take over land, displace people, destroy environments um, in order to make profits out of exploiting Central American labor and exporting products for the, um, for the benefit of cheap products for the benefit of consumers in Europe and the United States. You know, there's new products being brought into it. One is uh, palm oil, for example, to help us be more environmentally friendly here in the United States to use it as a um, biofuel or agrofuel. Uh, so we don't have to burn as much fossil fuel, but it's, palm oil is also used in practically every product, processed product that we buy whether it's um, you know, cosmetic products, cleaning products, processed foods, everything has palm oil in it. Um, and a lot of that palm oil comes from plantations in um, not only in Central America, in Colombia, in parts of Africa, in Indonesia, but that's one of the products. Another new product of the 21st century is um, the maquiladora industry in Central America. This has existed, and this is again like labor. So since really the middle of the 20th century, US industries have been trying to escape the labor and environmental protections and the taxes and the regulations that they're subject to in the United States because of labor struggles for the rights of workers in the United States. Um, they've tried to escape those by moving to poor countries that don't have those regulations and making sure that those countries don't enact those regulations by either invading them and overthrowing their governments if they try to, um, or by uh, you know, imposing them through trade agreements and international financial institutions if the governments are compliant. Um, so the maquiladora industry really started to grow in Central America in the 1990s and that as the wars were um, ended. So if your listeners take a look at the clothing that's on their bodies right now, pretty much everybody is going to be able to find an item of clothing that they're wearing that was made in a Central American country. So that's another piece of it that's new, but the pattern isn't really new. It's, it's the same. Um, but there's certain things that are much worse now than they've been in the past. And one of them is climate change. That is how the droughts, the hurricanes, the rising temperatures, the rising sea levels are affecting subsistence um, peasants, farmers, subsistence livelihoods in Central America. Um, you know, they're under assault from land grabbers and from institutions um, and from neoliberal changes that have removed government supports for peasant land ownership and for peasant production. Um, but they're also under assault from climate change. And many parts of Central America are literally becoming uncultivable, un unlivable. So in addition to the direct assaults from foreign companies, foreign investors, local elites, um, peasants are under assault from climate change and that's not going away. And the solution is even harder to articulate. That is, if it's your landowner 
who is exploiting you and, and taking your land away, you can envision a path to fight for your land. But if it's a hurricane, it's harder to envision, okay, so how are we going to fight for this? And the other thing which is truly horrific now is the levels of official violence, official and paramilitary violence against those who are fighting for change. And this too, in a way, is a result not of climate change specifically, but of, um, of the ways that the wars ended without fundamentally challenging the institutional causes of these wars. And you know what I was saying earlier about the, the, the difficulty of any government, even a leftist government that wants to change course, it's extremely difficult under current, the current global order for a leftist government to make significant changes in the way their own countries are, are organized. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> sorry to be depressing. Right. Uh, no, no, no. To, it's a reality uh, check here. Yeah, this is why we need to... um, and, and let me just also mention one other aspect of this global order. Um, do you know what the vaccination rate in Nicaragua is? No. It's 4%. Oh. And do you know how many days, if you look at Reuters, they post every day for every country of the world, how many days it's going to take at current rates for Nicaragua to vaccinate another 10% of its population? 187 days. Um, well, we're talking about really dire situations. Yeah, and um, really this has been a splendid uh, introduction to our series Aviva and uh, we'll, uh, we'll thank you again uh, before we go but uh, if you don't mind um, I'd say we're going to turn in, in the next program to immigration today but uh, I thought we'd like to get your take on some of the issues as kind of a kickoff for us and the question that I have, have that we that Loretta and I uh, jotted down was, what did you think when you saw Kamala Harris standing there in Guatemala saying, "Don't come here"? I cringed, <laughs> um, but you know, despite the fact that. Trump was much more openly and virulently expressing anti-immigrant racism than Democratic presidents like Barack Obama. And of course, Biden is inevitably associated with Obama because of his key role in, in Obama's immigration policies, um, you know, in his vice presidency. Um, I can't say, so I perhaps had some hopes for the Biden era um, on two counts. One, that I feel like Trump's overt and blatant racism um, in a way pushed Democrats into a critique that they wouldn't have been open to under a Democratic mm -hmm. presidency um, because Democrats like to be racist in quiet and polite ways <laughs> than Trump. Um, so they could just plot along like that. But, but Trump, you know, sort of pushing the envelope so far kind of forced Democrats into saying, wait a minute, this is not okay. 
Um, so that gave me a small amount of hope. And the other thing that gave me a small amount of hope was the pressure Biden was under from the left, from immigrant rights organizations, that, um, that there was a chance of pushing him into a more progressive immigration policy. Um, and, you know, certainly under the Obama administration, there were a few kind of dry bones thrown to the immigrant rights movement, like DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Um, this was nowhere near enough. It was framed in terrible ways that criminalized many immigrants, um, but it did offer a path to at least temporary legal status for a large number of young people and really changed many people's lives. Um, you know, it was a really important move that Trump was trying to end and Biden indeed has, um, you know, restored. But, but in other ways, Trump was really just more of the same, but more openly. Um, you know, we don't have evidence of any Democratic president who has truly welcomed immigrants of color. And all of the Democrats like to say, well, we're a country that's always welcomed immigrants, but what they mean is we're a country that's always welcomed white immigrants. So, you know, just say it straight out. We have never welcomed immigrants who are people of color, certainly not welcomed them as people with rights and potential citizens of the country. You know, you can say that the country's founders welcomed people of color if they were enslaved Africans, um, but that that's not what people like Obama uh, or Hillary Clinton or Kamala Harris mean when they say we're a country that's always welcomed immigrants. Um, so, um, you know, I also think that Biden, he's playing a lot of political games domestically and thinking about the midterm elections and thinking about the long-term prospects for the Democratic Party. And I think he feels vulnerable um, to attacks from the right on immigration and this pushes him to the right. So, um, yeah, yeah, Abby. So uh, the other thing here is um, I I see from I mean it's clear with the polit with the today's politics that all these uh, actions are just trying to sort of control the situation, but not finding a real answer to the issue of immigration. I mean, we are talking first of all that we have a huge, large population that are undocumented that has been living here for tens of years and they are well established as part of the social arena. They may not participate so much in the civic or political because of obvious reasons of not being documented and being threatened to be sent back to these countries that in such a disarray as you just have described for the last 50 minutes. So um, somehow there are not a real um, political um, interest to solve any of these problems, right? I mean, the DACA, it, even with the pandemic that you mentioned, the COVID pandemic, this is what we are facing in reality is that, okay, let's just choose a, a few people to, to give them citizenship and that way we cannot solve this problem or let the pressure out and just let the thing keep on Although going DACA the same create a path to citizenship. So we have to be clear about that. DACA is only temporary status. Right, and it joins the temporary status of many individuals from Central America that have come here because of natural disasters, yeah. So we have many fine individuals here in our county. 
hardworking people. We have a lot of people sitting at the border and uh, people that are working to better their lives, escaping these horrible situations. Do you have any suggestions of how we can get involved and how we can help these individuals to really achieve a decent um, life and also to access to basic human rights that seem to be, they have been deprived because of the circumstances they were born. There are multiple ways that people can get involved in different levels, depending on where they're located and what their capacities and interests are. If you're located near the border, there are many organizations working on the border, providing services and fighting for the rights of people at the border. In every place inside the United States, there are immigrant rights and immigrant solidarity organizations working at the local level for change. There are national level organizations working for change. Um, you know, really, we need to change U.S. foreign policy as well as U.S. immigration policy, and there are multiple avenues for getting involved in that. So, you know, educating yourself and finding out what's going on in your area, I guess, would be my first um, my first suggestion to people. Thank you so much. And I will suggest to everybody to please read Avi's book. It's called Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. And we have started our series with Avi. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Avi, for coming and being our guest today and talking about California. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back with another program in our series. So uh, listeners, please look out for us. And thank you, listeners. And once again, many, many thanks uh, to you, Avi Chomsky. Thank you. Until next time. This podcast was produced by KZYX-FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, local community radio for Mendocino County, California. If you enjoyed the program and you'd like to hear more, in Northern California, you can tune in anytime to KZYX at 90.7 FM in Philo, KZYZ at 91.5 FM in Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. If you're listening to this podcast from further away, we also stream live 24 hours a day at kzyx.org, where you can hear our eclectic range of locally produced music, public affairs, and news, along with daily state and national news programs and breaking news. You can also find out how to become a member to keep KZYX on the air. Thank you for listening.